Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. You know, I told you about just about every week, um, you know, I'm on, I talk to Jimmy Bell, who's a part of that ministry, Jimmy and Bryce together, and a, and a couple other folks work really hard every single week. So I get an update on Jim's ministry because he's a part of it almost weekly. And um, I want to tell you it takes a certain kind of person to work in that ministry. And there's a couple of requirements that go above and beyond. One of them is absolute consistency because they need to see the same face on a weekly basis. So they have to alternate when to take vacation. And I'm constantly hearing that we don't have enough people who, who know how to love and, and, and be a constant in, in the lives of those children and even adults. So if it's something that you say, I would like to be a part of that, a consistent part of that ministry, they would welcome you with open arms because they want to be able to encourage other people families to come uh, to Hillside and uh, take advantage of that. So if it's something that grabs a hold of your heart, they could use it. Go to our Connect area after the service. Uh, They would welcome you. So we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus, again, is showing us what it means to be a good person, live a good life. And let me remind you, this is an important reminder especially in light of what we're going to look at today. Um, uh, It's incredibly important to answer the question, what does it mean to be a good person and what does it mean to live a good life? Our society, as I've said before, is constantly asking. It's like a, a human need. It's not a luxury for humans to know that. It's a necessity to know it. Uh, and Jesus is saying, I have the answer. That's what he's saying. And the consequences of getting those questions wrong are devastating. And they last forever. At the end of this sermon, when we get there, years and years from now, (laughs) years, Jesus is going to use a couple of illustrations, very graphic ones, to drive that point home. It'd be, he's going to say your whole life will be lived as though you were on two, one of two roads. And there's a destiny at the end of those roads. And then he's going to say, or you're a builder and you've been building, you've been constructing a life that has an eternal destination to it. And so on one picture, your life's a journey and you're traveling and you're, the idea is that you're going somewhere ultimately into forever. And you can end up at the wrong place because you were not on the right road. Or your life is like a construction project. And you're building a certain kind of life. And you end up with a certain kind of home that you think is a safe dwelling, but then a storm comes and knocks it down. And you realize, I've been building a house that wasn't safe, a life that wasn't safe. 
And the storm, by the way, at the end of that is God. That's the storm. Jesus is saying, I can lead you to the right destination and I can keep you protected from the storm. And I want to just say this, this is important for what we'll see. There's a connection. This is one of the so critical pieces we try to drive home here at Hillside. There's a connection to the life that you lead and your eternal destiny. It's not arbitrary where you end up. You don't get to the end of a long journey and road and say, wow, I must have missed the turn. No, 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 no. You've been on that road headed for it. This is what you built. Nobody's going to arbitrarily send you anywhere. You took the road that got you there, and you built the house that couldn't sustain at the end. That's the picture. You go where your character will be at home. You don't arbitrarily end up anywhere. That is important to understand. And Jesus is simply saying this, I can turn you into something now that matters forever. Right now, you can become the kind of person that's suited for eternal life with me. Or you can become the kind of person that could not handle being in my presence at the end of time. Jesus will say, in order for you to do that, you'll have to surrender your heart to me. You cannot try to be good on your own. That's the wrong road. That's the wrong way to build the house. Just try to avoid certain sins. Feel good that you're not as bad as somebody else. Don't break certain laws. Jesus is trying to tell us in the sermon, that's not how you do it. Your problem is deeper. Your problem is deeper. It's not about not just committing these sins. It's about your heart. The heart is the issue. Sin is not just crossing the physical line. I mean, in other words, you don't sin when you cross this line. You sin long before that. It starts in the heart. You remember this verse we looked at. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Long before you cross the line, we've committed these. Well, if that's true, that. That goes a long way in determining which road you're going to take and what kind of house you're going to build. Which is Jesus' point. So, Jesus has demonstrated, just by using these first two issues right here, what we're looking at. What he means by the heart is the problem. Anger and lust. We hurt and we use each other mentally and physically, not just physically. 
And so he says in Matthew 5, 27 to 30, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. And I tell you, he that looks at a woman with the intent of lusting has committed adultery already in his heart. So Jesus is essentially saying this about lust, and I'm just going to capsulize this thought. Even though you haven't physically acted, as we saw last week, the eyeing, the fantasizing, the desiring is not a private matter. It's a personal thing, and it's a relational thing. Sizing people up, using them for selfish gain, reducing them to objects actually does do harm to you and to others. That's what Jesus has taught us. I just finished a book, actually, last night. I've been reading for a couple weeks. It's called Cheap Sex. Sobering Greed. Mark Regenerous. If you're still not convinced about the damage of lust and pornography and self-gratification... There's a chapter in there. It's worth reading if you only want one chapter of the book, although there's a few that are amazing. But one of them is called Pornography and Masturbation, the impact of using the imagination to imitate, augment, replace, and shape reality in your own mind, shape a world that doesn't really exist. And the impact on that, on real relationships, it's a profound work. Among other excellent arguments that he gives in there, that lust is not a private matter. As he talks about this idea that pornography creates competition for women. So just look at it. There's a, a, the, the increase of women who look at pornography is really on the rise. But in any study you look at, men are, are just warped in their own unique way, and far greater. And so in this particular thing, he talks about the competition that it creates for women. So think about this for just a second, because this was, this was interesting. He talks about uh, porn being so rampant among men, and women know it. What do you think it does to them, just knowing It has a huge impact on their lives, makes them uncertain and insecure about themselves, about their own sexuality. You might recall when uh, Jennifer Lawrence, Hollywood actress, was the victim of hackers who illegally uh, downloaded nude photos of her that she had taken of herself and sent to her boyfriend. And at some point she came out and discussed why she did that. And she basically said this, either your boyfriend is going to look at porn or he's going to look at you. In other words, even the Hollywood beauties are very much aware that they're in competition with pornography and that somehow they have to do more, they have to be more in order to sustain a man's attention. This is a horrible thing. This is, wait a minute, I thought pornography was just a private thing. It's not private. 
He's got a chapter at the end of this book called The Genital Life, which describes basically what happens to a culture when their genitals drive everything in their world, where sex is everything. And you make it everything, and you're, you're, just, a, you're just hell-bent on making yourself satisfied sexually, as if that's the only thing that matters in life. These kinds of things, internal lust, continues to drive home to us the mindset that that's all that matters in the world. It's not even close to what matters in the world. So Naomi Wolf, who is a a liberal author, a feminist liberal author, says the same thing. She goes, well, it's just the new cost of doing business with men. If you're a woman, you just know you're competing with his private life. But let me just say this, because there's a lot of things you can read and study and see. I just, after I wrote that in my notes, which was this morning actually, I just put this down. Disciples of Christ take his word for it. You just take his word for it that any internal private lust is damaging. You just take his word for it. Both of us, or both of these, anger and lust, warp and ruin and account for all sorts of evil toward each other or toward others. And to be dominated or consumed by either hate or greed, which is what lust is, is already a living hell. It's already hellish, which is why I sort of mentioned a couple weeks ago why hell is brought up in both of these sins at the beginning. Because it's hell to live with them. They lead to hell. They're hellish. And so, uh, if we look at the text that we're going to be looking at, where he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. It's, hell was mentioned up there in the anger one. And then in this, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it is better to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. So three times with the, with the idea of these two sins alone. And this is what I want to show you something about why hell is in here, about these two things. This is really important to understand. Uh, so I want to talk about this sort of deep burn because that's what the, this hellish image is all about. Inside the heart. It could be a lustful burn, which is hellish. It deforms your heart. Makes you something monstrous. And... If I had more room, it would make you fit for hell. That's what it does. It deforms you, monstrous, makes you fit for a world where you burn just to please yourself. That's what hell is. Hell is when you just have to be gratified and you'll use anyone for it. That's hellish. 
But there's another kind of burn Jesus is talking about, a burn for purity and for transformation that makes you something glorious in the end. Fit for heaven. It's the heart that burns for God that will want to be in heaven. It's the heart that burns for itself. Can only be one place, not in the presence of God. Doesn't want to be in the presence of God. And so this whole idea of hell in these texts I either want to burn for what God, I either want to burn for what God wants, or I'm just going to spend my life burning for what I want. Dallas Willard said one of my favorite things ever on hell, which rivals C.S. Lewis when he says, "The fires of hell, of the fires of heaven, burn hotter than the fires of hell." The desires that God gives you. When you get them to heaven, they just continue to burn, and they burn hotter than the fires of hell. One commentator I read, and I read as many as I could get my hands on, on this text, said the horrible imagery of these verses is intended as a sober admonition to disciples now rather than simply as a prediction of the future. The architectural plans of eternity are being drawn by the behavior of disciples. That's what the whole point of the road and the construction project at the end of time. You are right now constructing the kind of heart that can either make it in heaven or can't, one or the other. The self-consumed person wouldn't last a moment in heaven. Read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis and you'll see that. If you know what hell is, the word is Gehenna here. He could have used a couple of different words, but he used Gehenna, which is, it's, it's an actual spot right outside of Jerusalem, southwest of Jerusalem on the outskirts of the city. In the Old Testament, Evil enemies of Israel would sacrifice children to it. It was a devastating, uh, defiling kind of place. And one of the Old Testament kings, one of the Jewish kings, once they recovered that back, just turned it into a garbage dump. Gehenna would have brought the word, that's, that's what it was. It was just the garbage dump outside the city. Fires are always burning. There's just an always a smoldering kind of burn. That's why, you, that's why when you think of hell, you think the fire never goes out. What fire do you think that is? I can tell you what one thing, at least it is, the angry and lustful heart that just can't stop churning to please itself. unquenchable, unfulfilled desires. That's what hell is. So C.S. Lewis understood this extremely well. And he said, people don't go to hell on a whim. Something is growing up in them that will itself be hell. And he writes this, two things that I 
The characteristic of lost souls is their rejection of everything that is not simply themselves. What will make hell hell is you. The part of you that just can't ever be fulfilled and only thinks about you. That's a hellish life. You could be living a hellish life long before you get to hell. And then he writes this, and I I thought it worth reading. A damned soul is nearly nothing. It is shrunk, shut up in itself. God beats upon the damned incessantly as sound waves beat on the ears of the deaf, but they can't receive it. Their fists are clenched, their teeth are clenched, their eyes are fast shut. First, they will not, in the end, they cannot open their hands for gifts or their mouths for food or their eyes to see. You don't arbitrarily end up in either one of these places. You become the kind of person suited for one place or the other. Lust, essentially defined by Jesus as any kind of sex, mental or physical, outside of marriage. That's it. Self-consuming greed that points toward hell which we saw last week, that sex within marriage actually points toward eternity, toward a relationship with God, toward our ultimate spouse. They point toward eternity. Dorothy Sayer says this, and I cannot think of a better way to summarize just this piece. This is what she writes. It is precisely because of the eternity outside that everything in time becomes valuable and important and meaningful. Therefore, Christianity makes it of urgent importance that everything we do here should be rightly related to what we eternally are. Eternal life is the sole sanction for the values of this life. The eternal kind of life, which Jesus already puts in you, makes you burn for a kind of life that's not self-consuming. That qualifies, characterizes you as a person who can handle being in the presence of a God who demands that you love and value and care for other people and not just yourself. If you, don't, if you don't do that, you don't want to be in his presence forever. Everything becomes meaningful in light of that. That is what this is about. The fires of hell are already burning. A hellish life is already. You say, okay, well, what a... You say, I want to burn for God. We sang about it, didn't we? The refiner. I want to burn for you, God. Well, then what will Jesus say to us? For those of us who say, I don't don't want to burn now and I don't want to burn then. I don't want to be self-consumed now and I don't want to be self-consumed then. Well, what would he say to us? What would our guide say? to the righteous life, to the good life, say to us. 
Well, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And he says the same thing about your hand. Cut it off. Uh, what in the world is he talking about here? Well, let's talk about that. This is incredibly important to understand. Because Jesus is going to use this very grotesque, very horrific image to talk about this whole issue of lust. Uh, and what he's going to do by using these two images, he's going to drive home the point that he has been making all the way. You want to make sure you're not on the wrong road or building the wrong house. And you will do that if you think everything is about the physical and not the heart. He's going to drive home the point with this image that the inside's more important than the outside. Now, this is a hyperbolic statement, obviously. It's a metaphoric statement. And whenever you use this sort of syntax in, in Greek, you have an option. You have something called the first-class condition, uh, which in the writer's mind, he's presenting a reality. He may believe the reality or he may not believe the reality. The context determines which one he's doing. So for the sake of argument, the writer will say, well, let's just say your eye was causing the problem and you plucked it out. Or let's just say, for sake of argument, that your hand is causing the problem, we would cut it off. That's kind of what he's saying. Let's assume for the sake of argument that your eye and your hand are the problem here. Because the Pharisees have argued, you have heard it said, that only the physical matters, that only crossing the line of sin matters. You've heard that only the physical matters. If only the physical matters, then your eye and hand are the culprit. Okay? So if you believe that and you carry it to its logical conclusion, all you would have to do is start hacking off your body parts. Well, my eye caused me to sin. I don't want to go to hell. I'm going to pluck my eye out. My hand causes me to sin. I'm going to cut it off that way there. I can't. I won't be able to cross that line. But Jesus has been saying all the way through this talk, it's not crossing the line that's the problem. It's the heart. So then your best spiritual tool would be a saw. This is Jesus saying this. This is what you would do if you really believed that your anatomy was the root of sin. You'd carry around a saw with you. If you believe like the Pharisees do, that your problem is just physical, then just carry around us all with you. <laughs> so Willard says, better to roll into heaven a mutilated stump than to go to hell with all your limbs intact. Or, as Dan Wallace in his grammar, Greek grammar says, better to be called lefty in heaven than to fry in hell as a whole person. Did you see the movie Saw? When the first one came out, I had to see it. It was too intriguing. A saw. I had to see it. Essentially, the premise is this. The person chained up, about to potentially die, 
doesn't value something about life. And if he has to, if he has to take his own limb off, then he might realize just how valuable life is. That would be the idea here. And if it would work, Jesus' point is, it'd be worth it. It'd be worth it to stay out of hell, to cut your hand off or to pluck your eye out, if that would solve the problem. But it won't. The idea is, don't let anything stand in your way of being with God, connected to God, and eternal life. But Jesus' point here is that's not a good spiritual plan. Aren't you glad to hear that? First of all, the reason is because your heart is the problem. And by saying your heart is the problem, Jesus is saying this. Very sarcastically and very gruesomely. Refuse. Here's what we have to do for refuse to reduce sex to, to just sexual sin is to just a physical act. It's not a physical thing only. Don't reduce it to a physical act only. It's more than that. Second, he's saying the external solution is not enough. Mutilation is not enough. Your sin problem is bad enough that you could cut limbs off and you'd still have a problem, significant problem. The second thing that proves Jesus is only speaking hyperbolically and sarcastically here uh, is that Christ affirms the physical body. He took a body. He needs your body to do spiritual things. You need your body to fulfill spiritual things. He needs your eyes to see appropriately. He needs your hands to be used to serve. He doesn't want you to lose limbs. He wants your heart to be changed so that your limbs do differently. That's why you'll get a body in heaven. You get a body in heaven. You're not disembodied there. It's a different kind of body, but you're getting a body because you're going to need it to do the things God wants us to do in heaven. So, good news is, put the saw away. Some of you are like thinking, where's my saw in my garage? I don't know even where it is. Now, get rid of the saw. Now, I want to spend the remaining minutes we have trying to get a little practical with you about this. Uh, Martin Luther said, lust is a serious burden. So we're very clear what Jesus says about lust here and about sexual sin. But as Martin Luther said, it is a serious burden to bear. It's tough on us. It takes serious work, some serious internal work because it's not an external thing. You can't cut off your limbs. Well, then you better be doing some serious internal work if you're going to overcome this. Okay, so Job in Job 31. If you, the first uh, roughly eight verses are about lust and, and the covenant that he makes. He makes this covenant uh, here. 
I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? This is Job defending himself before his friends, before God, saying, look, I'm not, I'm not lusting. I mean, I'm not going through these hardships in my life because of lust in my heart. I've made a covenant with my eyes that I won't reduce a woman to something I use in my heart. And it's a covenant now. You could, you could go through this text. We don't have time to go through the first eight verses. I'm going to show you 9 through 12 in a minute because there he gets to adultery itself. You talk about lust in verses 1 to 8, and then 9 to 12 is about adultery itself. This is Job 31. And so in the first part, he's going to say, I'm going to make a covenant with my eyes. Now, I was trying to figure out the things that I'm about to tell you right now. Maybe a good illustration of this is uh, to get what I mean. I mean, you've got to have some very solid, stable principles in your mind and heart that you lean on for guidance when your heart gets self-consumed. You can't just be floating around. Lust will take you over. Gail and I were at a wedding this summer. We're sitting in the backyard in the northeast, beautiful, beautiful area. We're sitting in a backyard with water, and the bride comes in on a boat. Dad's taking her in on a boat. Somebody else is driving. Dad's sitting with her, and they just bring the boat up to the dock. Well, they got the boat up to the dock, and they couldn't get the rope around it. The wind was blowing. It was crazy. They had to turn around like twice, go around again, and come back. And I'm watching them, and we're all sitting there going, she's never going to make it to the wedding. They can't dock the boat. And I was, I was thinking that, you know, it was actually this morning when it hit me. I go, listen, if you don't have anywhere to, if you don't have anywhere solid to put that thing, you'll float around like a, like a little bitty dinghy. Wrong word to use today, but you'll be floating around out there, and you have nowhere to anchor yourself, no solid thing to stand on. That's what you'll be. And so I want to give you some of these, if you'll get over that for just a second. So here's the three things. This is, uh, what I did was I just out loud sort of processed with you how I operate in this world of lust. Just things that have helped me. First one is uh, what Job has said here. There has got to be some kind of internal commitment before the eyes ever get here. This is a heart thing. That, then the eyes come next. Some kind of covenant in the heart. That's where he puts, that's where he anchors that boat. So he's not floating around. A covenant has already been made. Uh, an internal commitment. And here's the internal commitment. It's to value people and see them differently. This is what you're praying in the course of a day. God, help me see people the way you see them. When you're tempted to use them or you're tempted to hurt them or you're tempted to bring harm to them, God, help me see people. This is a a conversation. C.S. Lewis said, love is the great conqueror of lust. You don't just stop lusting. You start loving. You start seeing people differently. That's what God gives the kingdom heart. I just don't see you that way anymore. I'm not going to use you that way anymore. You're too valuable. This is the conversation going on in, in, in your head. I just refuse that. And you're asking God for it. You don't want anyone in your world mentally to be unsafe around you. 
That's the heart. So the first thing is there's got to be an internal commitment to value people and what you're doing on a regular basis. And this will tell you where this really comes into play, when you see someone attractive and when you're driving in your car. How valuable are the people around you? How are you going to treat them? God, I'm n- I can't tell you how many times just driving from here to Hazlitt, which, by the way, is pure hell. It's hell itself. I mean, it could have been in this verse. How often in the course of a day I go, God, I'm going to honor that person right now. I'm going to honor them. And I'm not going to make them pay for what they just did. I'm not going to make them pay. This is a conversation that I have with myself. Same one with lust, Lord. Not going to. I'm not reducing her to that. That's the conversation I'm having. I'm having that conversation in my head. Because there's an internal commitment to value people because God values people. That's where the beginning, that's where it works for lust. Love's the conqueror. Second thing is, I've got to affirm purity. I've got to believe that purity is far more valuable and more important to the world, to me, to God, to everything. I've got to affirm that firmly. I've got to put that rope around that anchor. Listen, I want to be honest with you about something. I get some pretty sick thoughts when it comes to anger and lust. I don't even know where they come from. But I say to them, that's sick. That's not who I am. I will not do that. It will not characterize my life. I treat it like it's nothing, like it's ridiculous to have that idea. That's what you have to do. I realize real quickly what I'm capable of, and I'm capable of the worst things. I think of the worst things, but I quickly say, that is not who I am. It is not who I've been called to be. I will not act on that. Get out of here. And it's the way my brain, I got that kind of brain. Listen, you see through the illusion. That's what your eyes do. Lust is selfish and dehumanizing. 1 John 2.17, the world and lust are passing away. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. There's your two eternal destinations. Lust takes you to one. Self-consumption takes you to one. Wanting what God wants, burning for what he has for you, abides forever. I know where it leads I've done this job way too long. I have looked in the eyes of people who at one time thought, if I could be with her, if I could be with him, I'll sacrifice everything I've built my life on for it. And then I've seen those very same people sit before me and beg for God to undo that. I've seen it too many times. It's empty. Sin is dominated. It's a powerful force in your life. But listen, it's doomed. It will not last. It's empty. It's got nothing to offer you. So you got to affirm purity. And here's the third thing. Embrace discomfort. I want to drive this one home. It's, uh, because let me just tell you something. Managing lust will cause you a great deal of pain. You're going to suffer a lot if you're going to value people at this level. You are going to suffer. You are going to absorb a lot of pain to do it. 
Embrace it. It's okay to hurt. Every, C.S. Lewis said, in mere Christianity, you can read this yourself, every sane and civilized man must have some set of principles. Those are the principles, by the way, that you dock your boat to, by which he chooses to, to reject some of his desires and permit others. Hey, listen, we all have weird, sick, unhealthy desires in all areas of our life. We've got to have some way to say no to them or else we're destroying ourselves. So some desires just have to be denied. Don't get caught up in the, well, it's natural. What can I do? I need this. (laughs) No. That's ridiculous. Because you know what? It feels like you're violating yourself when you say no to anything. I don't care if it's cookies or sex. You just feel like you're violating yourself. I don't think I can live with myself saying no to that. That's how we feel. Why can't I have it? That's, I just, let me tell you one of the best things I did this summer. I read a book. It's my favorite book I read this summer, and I read a, hand, a good handful of them, was The Comfort Crisis by Michael Easter. Oh, my goodness. One of my favorite reads in a long time. It's a call to break out of the comfort seeking. I read it just because I thought, I wonder if it'll help with the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, did it. <laughs> oh, it was amazing. It's a call to break out of comfort seeking and, and, and leverage the power of discomfort to improve life. Because comfortable living, he argues in the book and proves it, is killing us. It's killing us, mentally and physically. There's a whole science out there. Did you know this? A discomfort science. It's based in Iceland, which is perfect. (laughs) Okay, it's perfect. Uh, Carl Stephenson, he's a geneticist. Listen to this. The World Health Organization recently discovered that Icelandic men are the longest living on earth. Guys from Iceland rack up roughly 81.2 years. That's 13.2 more years than the global average and 5.2 more years than men in the United States. When a team of 500 researchers from more than 300 institutions in 50 countries combined all their longevity data, Icelandic men outlasted all of them. (laughs) And They have a gene they actually call the hard-to-kill gene. This is fantastic. Uh, The environmental conditions, which they say is merciless little island. There's not many people on this island, but these boys are bad to the bone. And because they endure such, (laughs) when you read, listen, I had to put a beanie on and a parka to read this section. (laughs) When you read that section, you're like, oh my gosh, these guys are beasts. I can't even handle a little chill. It's a little chill. It was almost too cold for me to come to church this morning. At 5.30. Listen, you have got to welcome legitimate pain in your life. It's legitimate to say no to things in your life that you want. You need, to know, you need permission. You need authority. You need to know it's legitimate. Exercise hurts. You start liking it. I'm telling you, start liking it. If you don't go to bed hungry... then you're not experiencing legitimate pain. 
you got to go to bed. A little hunger, and we panic. I don't care if it's healthy or not healthy. We don't even care. We don't make distinctions. If we're hungry, we just think we ought to have it. And I'm telling you, no. You got to tell yourself no, and you got to say, this is a good pain. This is good pain. Okay? And here's this, here's, I'm going to wrap this piece up before I give you one other piece of advice. You've got to have some backbone if you're going to overcome lust. You've got to stand up for yourself and for others. Wives, you don't have to tolerate pornography. Confidence in who you are, as I'm talking to you guys too, and what God wants for you. You need confidence in that. Quit walking around so needy. that you're willing to compromise anything. You'd just be a sucker if you do that. Easily manipulated. Desperate. Don't go along with stuff. Stay away from things. Stand up for things. You end up finding yourself with a loser or in a losing situation. Stand up to that. Get out of there. Uh, Real quick, if you're unmarried, I feel for you. And no one standing here, no one in this room saying that's not that that's that's easy. It's not. I don't believe it is for one second. Now, I will tell you how, how I got to where, how, 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 what helped me the most when I was single was a friend. I had a guy friend in my life who was as committed to trying to be pure as I was, and he monitored who I dated and what we did on our dates, and we actually conversed about it. Who are you thinking about going out with? Oh, no. That ain't happening, big boy. You pick the right person, it'll go a long way in helping you stay pure. Quit making cruddy choices. Who matters? And what you do on that date, you got to come home and you got to tell somebody what you did. Saved both of us. If you're married, uh, there's a lot of things that I could say. Sex doesn't have to be everything. It doesn't even have to be a major thing. It's, it doesn't have to be. Not if you have a, not in a healthy marriage, it just doesn't. But you ought to just be sensitive to each other and in the, in the, in the, how hard it is to be pure. You ought to be sensitive to each other on that. And I'll tell you the main reason. Job says this in Job 31. I just want to read to you what he's, can you handle it? You got a second? This is what he says. If my heart is to be enticed toward another woman, if I had lain in wait at a neighbor's door, and he literally says this, let my wife grind for another and let others bow down on her. For that would be a heinous crime. That would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. For that would be a fire, a fire 
This is Job using the same language Jesus is that consumes as far as the bad. It would be a lust that would have brought devastation. If I'm a guy and I've done this to my wife, it has brought devastation to her. Let her grind for another. These are languages of servanthood. They're sexual euphemisms about the destruction and the servitude that comes into a person's life, the humiliation that comes into a person's life when you cheat on them. Somewhere in your heart, you have to be able to say, I'm not putting the, the husband or the woman, the man or the woman that I love through that. I say it to myself regularly, Gail doesn't deserve that. She's loved me, put up with me, sacrificed for me, birthed four boys, taking care of those boys, has done a million things for me. When she asked me to rub her feet, dad, gum it, I'm rubbing them. You rub them. I don't want her to be, to, to have that. I don't want her competing with anybody. To the best of my ability, I don't want that for her. Now, let me say this. You're going to sit here and you're going to say, and I know you're going to say it. You're going to say, well, I've screwed this up. Well, you know how I feel about that. First of all, you're in good company. And here's the second thing. This is, this is my procedure in life. I screw up a lot. I screw up a lot. This is what I do. I confess it. I repent. I make it right if I have to make it right, and then I move on. I'm done with it. I'm moving on. I don't have time for it. Get, I'm asking you to do what Jesus says in this text, which is essentially this. Get serious about this. More serious than you've ever been. Christ died for you. He made an eternal investment in you. Live like you're going to live with him forever. Live like you're going to live with him forever. Psalm 39.3, David, aware of his own sin, said this. While I was musing, the fire burned. Such a great text. Such a great text. While I was thinking about my life and what, I, what matters to me and what my values are, I started to get a new passion, a new burn for what he wanted. God, help us burn for you. That's my prayer. Help us burn for you.